You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading this morning comes from Genesis 2, verse 4 to 25. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up yet, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land in Hevelah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he could call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So good, good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you before, my name's Josh, the pastor here at Praxis. Big warm welcome to you. Good to have you here with us. Uh, go ahead, open your Bibles. You'll need them. We're going to be continuing on in our journey through Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some in the back, by the way. We'll have some of the verses up on the screen, but that's our gift to you on the way out. We're continuing journeying through Genesis, and uh, there's been lots in here. Uh, if you were with us last week, we took a look at God creating the heavens and the earth, and then beginning this six-day creation narrative of of filling the earth, separating and filling. And today we're going to be picking it up in chapter two, as you just heard read. And um, just just kind of by way of full disclosure, there's going to be some things this morning. We're going to encounter some ideas. I'll put it that way that um, have perplexed and confused. More than a few. Even, yeah, if you've grown up in the church, I think this morning we're going to talk about some ideas that you might not have considered before. I think some people's understanding of Genesis is going to be challenged a little bit, but my hope and my prayer through this is as we dive in and we do this, we're going to see more. The scripture's going to come more alive. I'm really excited about this text. It's been a fun week of digging into it and studying. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that gift that I've got to do and, and trust as we open the word and we get into it now, the Spirit's gonna minister. So uh, let me pray and then we will, we'll get going. Father, we just thank you uh, as we've been singing. You are our great defender. You're our great God. And we thank you that you, the God of the universe, um, came and, and have revealed of yourself to us. You've spoken words 
preserved them for us. And we know that this letter this was written for the Israelites thousands of years ago, but we know it's for us as well, that there's truth here. And I ask that you come do what I can't do, which is make the truth come alive in our hearts. I need your, I need your empowering to, to present this truth, and then we need you to, to come and unpack it in our lives. And so ask for that. Um, to you, Father, in the name of the Son. Amen. Well, yeah, if you were with us last week, we read about the creation narrative, how God created everything and the order in which he created everything. And as we, you know, you might have picked this up, as we opened up chapter 2, we already heard read this morning, God's also creating here in chapter 2. It's also presenting to us some creating, mankind, trees, animals, and the such. And the question that has been asked many, many times many times throughout history, maybe you asked it as you heard it read this morning, is why the retelling? Why is it telling us this again? Didn't we just hear this story? And for the very observant listener or or reader, you might have noticed what looks like some differences between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Anyone noticed this before? Okay, I'll put Genesis 1, the order of creation, up on the screen. So what we saw in Genesis 1 God came and separated, created day and night. He separated the waters from the waters, created the skies or the heavens is kind of the language that gets used there. Then he separated the waters on the ground to create land. And then he came and he began to fill what he had separated, vegetation. He put the sun and moon and stars, um, put animals on the earth, then mankind. But as we get into Genesis 2, it seems like something else is being presented to us. Take a look at this. I've got just the comparison up here. I'm going to read and, and point this out to us. Verse 5, it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no plant in the field, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man. So before vegetation, he created man. In Genesis 2. The order seems to be getting mixed up. Take a look, if you drop down to verse 18, then it says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I'll, I'll make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would be called. And whatever the man called the living creatures, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds and of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no helper found for him. So Now he's creating animals after vegetation, and then after the animals, he creates woman. It looks like the order's a little convoluted from what we saw in Genesis 1. Anyone else noticed this before? Just show of hands. Okay. Here's what often happens when we notice this. One, we we end up confused. Like, how am I supposed to get what is going on? You know, Genesis can't get its story straight. Or we end up doubting, like, hey, man, if the first two books of the Bible, or if the first two chapters of the Bible contradict, why should I trust any of it? Or maybe we've just glanced right over it. We just kind of ignore the differences. I'd say all of them are <clears throat> dangerous, but all of them could lead to us ignoring some really important things. All three of those responses will lead to us missing what's actually going on in the text, which is so, so good when we begin to see it. We we talked last week, if you were with us, about how the differences are actually meant to catch our attention and draw us in, because in the East, they tell stories, and, and they teach different than we do. Here, we give people, here's the information, we present our points, the students memorize it, and then hopefully they can do well on their exams. In the East, they they teach different. They hide things in the narrative. We're meant to engage and dig in and discover because they believe it helps us actually learn rather than just memorize. Our, our, our tendency in the West is to read this in a really chronological fashion. You know, just give me the facts. But Genesis 1 and 2 are structured differently on purpose. And my argument is this. The, the differences between these two chapters are meant to be noticed. And Genesis 2 is not an editorial blunder, 
They're meant to pique our interest. They're meant to intrigue us, and they're meant to make us ask questions. And so I want to open us with a couple. One, what if Genesis 2 isn't talking about the same thing as Genesis 1? What about if Genesis is telling us Genesis 2 is talking about something different altogether? If I have piqued your curiosity at all, I want to suggest this. Whereas Genesis 1 is discussing how God created everything in the entire cosmos, Genesis 2 is speaking specifically about God forming a covenant people in a covenant land. The reason Genesis 1 and 2 look different is because the camera has a different lens on it, so to speak. So Genesis 1 is telling the large-scale story of the whole earth. It's got a wide-angle lens. Genesis 2, it's dropping down into a specific place. It's putting on a close-up lens. It's dealing with some intimate details. It's telling a specific story of a specific place and a specific people, and it's telling us with the lens zoomed way in. If you're an uh, English literature student, this is the literary um, style. It's called in media res. So it tells a story, kind of zooms way in. If you like, like Guy Ritchie or Tarantino, they'll use this a lot. It's zooming in on the story a little. Genesis 2 has a different objective than Genesis 1. It's moving on from talking about the big story of how creation got here to the close-up details of why God is making it, the purpose for which he made it. And there's a big clue that announces this to us. If you take a look in verse 4, it says this, um, these are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. These are the generations... If you're reading a new NIV or the New Living Translation, I might say this is the account. If you're reading the King James, it says this is the history. And, and if you were with us in week one, I kind of explained what these are, should make us think of. This is what's referred to as a toledot. Genesis is comprised of 10 different toledots. A toledot, just by way of refresher, a bit of like a genealogical story of a specific people. It's a story of a specific time, descendants of a specific person. So hang a right. Flip a page or two in Genesis over to Genesis 5, verse 1. I'll show you another toledot. It says this there. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So it begins the same way. Whenever we see this generation language, it's a new toledot. It's a collection kind of that tells a story of a specific people. The toledot of Adam goes from Adam to Noah, 10 generations. But as we go into Genesis 2, there's no people yet. So the generation isn't of a specific person, it's of the earth. And it's telling us a story of the earth. It's telling us a genealogical story of the earth. It's going to begin and, and carry right through all of scriptures. I'm really excited to show this to you. It moves on here, Genesis 2, from describing how the creation came to be to what became of the creation. Say that again, this is the whole idea. Genesis 1 tells us how the creation came to be. Genesis 2 tells us what became of the creation. And here's what I see going on. And this is going to be a new idea to some in the room. Genesis 2 isn't talking about the same thing as Genesis 1. It's talking about a specific piece of land within the world that God created. So he created everything in Genesis 1, but he left. He kind of earmarked and reserved a piece of land to come and work on at the end. That land is Eden. I want to show this to you. So in Genesis 2, when we see God creating trees, he's not talking about what he did in day 3 on the whole earth in Genesis 1. He's talking about something that God did after, likely all on day 6. So this is a zoom in on day 6. The events of Genesis 2 aren't referring to global activities of God, but localized activities of God. They're talking about a work that God did in one place, Eden. They're describing God making Eden. And, and I think the ESV points this out best. Look again at verse 5 with me. So it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land. That word, the land. So it was talking about the earth before. Now it's talking about the land the land, the land that starts at the beginning and carries all the way through to the end. If you're a student of the Bible, it's that land. The difference here is meant to draw our attention to what's actually going on in the story. He's not talking about the whole earth, but the land of Eden. And now, if this is a new idea to you, 
you need to know this isn't a new idea. This is actually a very ancient one. The, I, the concept that most of us have of Genesis 2 is quite a newer idea. This is quite an ancient one. Um, I'm, not, I'm not just pulling this out of my, my rear pocket. This has been around for a while. Um, I would argue that this understanding actually helps make the most sense of the entire story of Scripture. And it helps make the most sense of the differences that we're seeing in Genesis 2, which is what we're trying to figure out right now. So there's a number of differences. want to draw our attention to these. Um, they're meant to catch our attention. We're going to look at a number of them today. And as we do, what we're going to see is four things kind of revealed to us. First, God's nature. Second, God's creation. Third, God's or garden. Fourth, God's design. If you're a note taker, you're welcome. This is, this is how I'm going to walk through it and, uh, and, and, and deal with the text this morning. So the first difference, we've already, we've already looked at it. It might have passed under our nose, though. Take a look again at verse 4. It says, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. What's the difference? If you are with us last week, Genesis 1 refers to God as God. Genesis 2 says, Lord God. It's very obvious in the Hebrew and in English, we kind of, in our heads, we're just like, oh yeah, God. Lord God, capital L, Lord, all caps, Lord. It's all the same thing, but they're actually representing different things. If you have a good study Bible, at the front of it, you should have an appendix that will unpack how that translation has, is dealing with different names of God and what they've put down. Sometimes you'll get capital L and then three small letter Lord. Sometimes you'll get all capital Lord. Sometimes it's Lord God and so forth, and they're all showing different names of God that are to be revealed. It's, it's not super obvious in the English, but it is obvious. Some kind of the discerning reader will have caught it, but there is a big difference in Hebrew that we need to see. So in Genesis 1, we, we unpacked this week one. God is Elohim. This is the general name of God. Genesis 2, we see a, a new compound name, Yahweh Elohim. It's a personal name of God. It's a personal name. It's used in the context of God having relationship with his people. It's like, you know... Um, you might, some of you might call me Pastor Josh. It's a formal name, but my kids call me Daddy. It's a f familiar title. This is what Yahweh is. It's the personal name of God. And it's not an accident that we see this begin in Genesis 2. It's, it's trying to show us something different. And, and if you got really nerdy, pulled out Blue Letter Bible online, or you could get into the Hebrew, what you'd notice is Genesis 2 and 3 uses this name 20 times. It's showing us something, this told it up. 20 times, that's more than the rest of the Old Testament combined. We're supposed to see this. There's something special about this name of God. We're, we're, we're seeing a very important detail about God. He creates man, but then he actually comes and walks with him, speaks with him, interacts with him. What we're seeing is that our God is a relational God. It's a relational God. Genesis 1 presented a God who was sovereign and powerful, more sovereign and more powerful than any element of creation. Genesis 2 is showing us something different. So in Genesis 1, he's transcendent, meaning he's over and above. Genesis 2, he's imminent, he's close, and he's relatable. This is interesting. I mean, the gods of other religions don't have this. The gods of other religions are far off and distant. Right away at the beginning here, we're seeing our God is close. He's engaged with his creation. He's relational. There, there's another difference in here, though, too, that as we notice it, it's going to tell us something else. We're seeing something about God's character revealed. And again, there's more we could get into, but there's lots of texts for me to deal with. So the second, second thing, um, difference, is going to point out something about God's creation. And so as Genesis 2 begins to describe all that it does, that, yeah, there's another thing here, and, and it's easy to pass over as well if we don't, um, if we're not really got, like, paying attention, but it's very obvious in the Hebrew. Take a look at verse 5 again with me. So it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the ground, 
A mist was going up from the land, watering the whole face of the ground. So it seems Eden has like underground, in-ground sprinkler system going on here. There's no rain yet. That doesn't come until we'll get into that in coming weeks. But there, there's a mist. So it's misting. And then it says, then the Lord God, pay attention, formed the man of the dust of the ground. Formed. Formed. Last week, it said he created. And, and now we're seeing a different word, formed. Again, more obvious in the Hebrew, because in the Hebrew, the word used for all of the creative work in Genesis 1, there's two words, bara. We, we dealt with that early on in the series. And asa. Bara and asa. But then in Genesis 2, we see a new verb being used to describe God's creative work. It's yasar. That's what's being translated as formed. Yasar, it's, it's, again, it's a more personal word. It's describing somebody actually using their hands. It's like what a potter would do if he formed a clay pot on like a, a, whatever those wheel things are, okay? That's yasaring. That's yasaring. And it says that God yasard man. He didn't just speak him into existence, didn't will him. He formed him like a potter's clay wasn't just far off. Actually, it says he came down into the dust and formed him. He got down and dirty and made man with his hands. And this is different than anything else in all of creation that God made. And, and this is actually r- really good news. This presents great truth to us. We're not the product of happenstance. We were intentionally formed by God. Take a look at this, Psalm 139. It says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. Look at the the language it's using. Forming, knitting, care, and intention. Intimacy. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's fearful because Genesis, through its verb choice, implies that the very hand of God made us. And this should blow our minds apart. God made us. I read a story this week about um, a French woman, an older French woman, who had a piece of heart um, hung over her toaster. Uh, she kind of assumed it was worth nothing, because that's not where you put your nice art, right? Over your toaster. Like, you, we, res- we don't put our nice art over our, our tabletop kitchen appliances. We tend to put the stuff we bought at home since over our couch, right? That's where the fancy stuff goes, where people can see it. But she's got this piece of art, just over her toaster, and one day somebody comes over and points out to her that it's worth $26 million. She had no clue. The reason it was worth $26 bucks because of who made it. Some renaissance maker whose name I can't pronounce. But who made it gave it its value, because it wasn't really that nice looking. I, I chased her down and found a picture of it. But it's who made it that gives it value. Likewise, this simple change in verb in Genesis here changes everything for us because it means we have more worth and value than anything else in creation, more than the mountains, more than the trees, more than the monkeys, even the cats, even your small dogs, all of that. We have more value than any of it, more than the sunsets, more than the largest sea creatures, to whatever. We have more worth and value than it because we're the product of God's hands the greatest artist ever. That's a better narrative than anything else this world's got going. Other beliefs say you're, at worst, a science accident, at best, intelligent mold. Christianity says that you are created in the image of God by his own hands, but there's more. There's more. I sound like an info person, you know? But there's more. Read verse 7 with me. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. But it doesn't describe doing the, God doing this with anyone else, anything else. He comes down, kneels down in the dirt, forms man, breathes into him. And this word breath, many scholars point out, it, it, it rhymes, it looks the same as the word for his spirit, ruach. And they would say, he's put his spirit into us. And I think the scriptures point this out as well. He's, he's put his spirit into us. And through doing this, we received a couple things that no other creature in the world did. First, understanding. Look at what Job says. 
minutes up there. There we go. Okay. It's, Chris, that was beautiful. It's the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. We're not highly evolved apes. The reason we have understanding and they don't is because the spirit of God's in us. Something else that we got from the spirit of God is a conscience. Take a look at this. Proverbs says, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord searching his innermost parts. The conscience, that thing that causes us to introspectively look, is his spirit. He breathed his spirit into us. What it did is it put a soul in us. We are, this is different than anything else in all of creation, we're body and souls. So your little dog doesn't have a soul, won't be in heaven. We will, because we have a soul. I don't know if dogs will be in heaven, but discussion another day. We have a soul. We Actually, we don't just have a soul. We are embodied souls. We're embodied souls. We're not just made for physical life. We're made for spiritual life. This, again, changes everything. Because in our culture, here's what we believe. I'm just a physical being. The core of my being is just like stardust, colliding with stardust, some like chemical reaction thing. And so the way to fix everything that's wrong with me is change the chemical reaction. That's what psychology teaches. That's what most pharmaceuticals are trying to do. The Bible says, yes, there's physiology, but at the core of it, there's a soul. So when our body dies, the soul just continues on because he breathed his eternal breath into us. We're obsessed with our physicality in our culture. The Bible's pointing out we have a lot more than just our physicality. We're a soul. That's why we, we treat things constantly on our body. A lot of the problems we're trying to treat physically are actually soul issues. They're soul issues, and we don't recognize it. Look at this verse. I love it. Physical exercise has some value, but spiritual exercise is valuable in every way. Why? Because you can have the most jacked body, and it's going to die. We need to work on our souls, to engage on that level, because we're just embodied souls. This body's going to die. One day we'll work on our bodies for all of eternity. We'll all look like, I don't know, Chris Helmsworth with his shirt off or something. The difference in this text matters. It's intentional. It's meant to catch our eye. From Elohim to Yahweh, it tells us something about God's character. From Bara and Asa to Yasar, it tells us something about ourselves. I want, to, I want to show us something else, though, that's going it's, to it's, it's help um, make sense of another issue. We're going to encounter now is a description of God's garden. And I want to look at one of the differences I brought up at the beginning um, in the order of creation. So if you remember, Genesis 1 says God created plant life on day three, then mankind on day six. Here we see God having just created man and then creating plant life. I'll just read it again. So, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord hadn't made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Then he made man, then he plants a garden. You look at this, and it, we go, what gives? And we're meant to. What gives? Well, it's intentional. It's not an accident or an editorial blunder. What we're seeing here is, again, not a description of God creating everything in the world, but God's a description of God making Eden specifically. The land being referred to in Genesis 2 is not the entirety of the earth. It's Eden. It's the land of Eden. And verse 8 tells us this more clearly. Take a look. It says, The Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. What land is he talking about? Verse 8 told us it's Eden. Now notice here, though, too, it's not the garden. Um, the, the, the garden isn't named Eden. Most of us think that. The garden's name isn't Eden. The, Eden uh, the garden is in Eden. It's not the garden named Eden. It's the garden in Eden. Eden isn't the garden. The garden's in Eden. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So there's a chunk of land named Eden, and then he comes and he plants a garden in it to the east. It's 
in the east side of Eden. Eden, interestingly, it means place of pleasure and delight. So God's creating a land as a place of pleasure and delight. Then he plants a, a, a garden in it. And then it says that he put man in the garden. And we should ask, why does God put man in this garden? Because Eden is the place where God designed to have a relationship with his creation. Eden was designed as a place for communion with God. The garden in Eden was, if you will, a temple. Eden was a temple for God here on earth. It's a garden temple, and there's lots of parallels. I want to show you some. A lot of parallels between what we see in Eden and all of the temples now throughout the scripture. And the reason why is God's trying to show us Eden was his original temple. I want to show you five reasons we should understand Eden as a temple. I'm borrowing a lot of these ideas from a fantastic book called Kingdom Through Covenant by Peter Gentry. It's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And, and he lays out a lot of arguments for this. I'm just going to give you five for sake of time and to be concise. First, the, the garden is shown to us as containing the presence of God. Temples are characterized by containing the presence of God. The garden is where Genesis describes God meeting with his creation. Just as the temple had the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelled, so does Eden have a garden where God's presence dwells, like a holy of holies within the greater chunk of land. God, additionally, in chapter 3, we'll see in the coming weeks, he comes down and he walks and talks with man there. He's present there in the garden, just as he is in the holy of holies in the temple. Second reason I think we should understand Eden as a temple is it's entered from the east. Remember when in Genesis 3, they sin, they get kicked out to the east. They get sent out to the east. Kind of an interesting side fact. You remember when, I'll, I'll put a pin in that, coming weeks. They get kicked out to the east, and actually um, the temple in Jerusalem was entered from the east. The Holy of Holies was entered from the east. There's parallels here. It had a tree at its center. So it had the tree of life in Genesis 2, and the temple had the menorah. It's a kind of a fancy candlestick that's fashioned and stylized after the tree of life. It, as well, so when it, God puts Adam in the garden, it says that he put him there to work and keep it. And that phrase, work and keep, only occurs elsewhere in one, two chapters of the Bible when in three instances it describes what the priestly task within the temple was to do, which is to work and keep. So there's a correlation here. Lastly, it's on a mountain. How do I know that? Well, because it says that the rivers flowed out from it. Rivers flow downhill, and which points to the fact that this is on a mountain. Temples are built on mountains because in the ancient Near East mind, this was the closest place you could be to God. We're seeing this. Genesis is being equated as a temple, and this is important because it's setting up an idea that's going to carry on from here in Genesis 2 through the rest of Scripture. The, the whole of the Scripture has this one underlying purpose and decree of God. The whole of the Scripture. God's design and desire for his creation was this, that he would be our God, we would be his people, and he would dwell with us. That was his plan. That's why he created the garden. And this idea carries through the whole rest of Scripture. I, I can quote, could give you dozens of Scriptures. I'm going to put some up here in a minute. But his plan was to be our God, for us to be his people, and him to dwell with us. This is what Eden was. Here's the land where you will live, where I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell with you in the garden. This was God's design. And, and the rest of Scripture, if, if you've tracked this, you know, even after they get kicked out of the garden, the whole story is about God trying to bring them back to this. And you remember, this book I've said a couple times now is given to the, the, um, the people as they were, uh, the people of God, as they were about to possess the land again. Right? As they'd been delivered from Egypt, they'd been in the wilderness, they're about to cross the Jordan and take possession of this land. He gives them this story. 
because this is what he's working to restore, the relationship he created Eden for. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people, and he wants to dwell with them. And this is our fourth point, is God's desire. This is his desire to be our God, for us to be his people, and for him to dwell with us. This is why he made Abraham promise to make him a nation, because you will be my people. This is why he, he rescued them from Egypt, so that he would be our God. And this is why he's about to give them a specific piece of land, because he wants to dwell with them. Now, I'm going to say something that is, um, it's going to be a new idea to some in the room here. The reason God is showing this info about the land of Eden, the garden within it, to the people of Israel, is because the land he promised to give them is the land of Eden. The land that God promised to give Israel 2,500 years after Genesis 2 is Eden. Eden is the promised land. I want to show you this. Okay, go to verse 10 with me. A river, we'll we'll read it, okay, and then I'll unpack it. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the uh, the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, and there's gold there. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. Also, another point for argument for temple is those are stones that were used in the temple. Interesting, maybe interested me. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it flowed out around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates, which, of course, basically, like, feeds everywhere. First, here, just just notice this. The four rivers coming out of the land of Egypt, they basically water the whole earth. This, all life, all vegetation surrounding the nations It's presented as coming from Eden. I'm not going to dive into that now. We'll come back in a minute, so put a pin in it. Second thing I want us to notice here, though, that that pertains to what we're talking about right now with these four rivers is the names of these rivers. So place is always important when you're reading the Bible. Um, They're never kind of like throwaway places. When you see a place mentioned, it should drive you to, like, when else was Hebron mentioned? You read about the woman on the well? Trace that story back. Oh, why are they sacrificing on this mountain? Trace that story back. Because place is important. And these places are important. These four river names are important. Because the rivers that are used to describe the boundaries of Eden here are the same rivers God uses to define the boundaries of the promised land in Genesis 15. Two of the rivers mentioned in Genesis 2, they match up directly with these rivers. The other two, we don't know if they've been renamed. We don't, we don't know where the land of Havilah is either. Like that's been renamed over time and we're still learning things through archaeology. So two of them, we don't really know where they are. And perhaps even when the global flood came, it, it rerouted. I've nerded out. Some people actually are using LIDAR to track like ancient riverbeds and stuff. So you can go dive into that if you want. I've spent a lot of hours, a lot, a lot of hours researching this and going, hey, where could these four rivers have converged from? Where is the Garden of Eden, in other words? And what I can tell you is this, is that you can spend a full week of your life investigating this and still not know where it is. And my wife won't let me spend any more time. But what I can say is that all the biblical info points to this being within the land of present-day Israel. What I think Genesis is trying to show the Israelites is that God's promise to the patriarchs is connected to his, his intention in creation. The promise of the land is connected to why he gave it in the first place. God's not just telling a story about Eden He's showing them what his design was for the land they're about to possess because he wants to restore that purpose. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people, and he wants to dwell with them. And this now we see open up in Genesis 2, but it's a theme that carries through the whole rest of the scripture. What began, we know as God's original design in Genesis 2 is hijacked in Genesis 3 and the people are sent out to the east. They go out to the east. And 
A number of different things happen. A great journey. It's probably like this much of the Bible. <laughs> they go out. They end up in captivity in Egypt. He comes and delivers them, makes them a people, takes and, 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 and God comes down and begins to um, dwell with them again in a tabernacle tabernacle that was modeled after Eden. It's kind of like a mini Eden on wheels that they can drag around the wilderness with them. But then they take possession of the promised land and it's put into stone in a temple. This desire that God would make them a people, he would be their God and he would dwell with them is is put in stone. But we know that goes wrong as well, right? Just like Adam and Eve, they, they sin, they break the commands of God and God sends them out to the east, just like he did Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 go to the east and their descendants end up at the Tower of Babel. In, later on, as they're expelled from the Promised Land, they go out into Babylon. It's, it's all one pattern, and God working to fix the broken. God's desire is to be with them, to be their people, or for him to be their people and for him to dwell with them. And even in their exile in Babylon, he's working to accomplish this. Take a look at this. <coughs> Ezekiel 37. This is spoken to the people of Israel through prophet while they're in captivity in, in um, and, and exile in Babylon. And he comes and he says this. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And we see this come radically alive in the person of Christ. Jesus comes down and works to accomplish this. John 1, it says, The Word, God, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Interesting, some translations actually word that as he tabernacled among us. What we see, God coming to restore his mandate. We would be his people, he would be our God, and he would dwell with us. We see that in Christ. He tabernacled with us. Why? In order to take care of all the things that kept us from the temple, that kept us from the tabernacle, and kept us from the garden, the sin that separated us. He came and he took care of it. This, th- Jesus made a way for the original intention of God to take place, that he would be our God, we would be his people, and he would dwell with us. And, okay, this is where it now gets certifiably crazy because what began with a design for God to dwell amongst us ends with God dwelling in us. What began with God's desire for him to dwell with us ends with him dwelling in us. The scripture says the Holy Spirit dwells within us if we're Christ's. Genesis 2 God came and he breathed his spirit into his creation. That's how we were created. That's how we got life. The New Testament tells us we get new life when he comes and breathes his spirit into us again, regenerates our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh that desires him. We become his temple. Take a look at what 1 Corinthians says. Do you not know you are God's temple and his spirit dwells within you? We get this wrong all the time because our culture teaches, like, we invite Jesus into our hearts. Jesus is inside me. It's it's not what the scriptures teach. It's God's Holy Spirit that's within us. It's his Holy Spirit within us. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus gifts us the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who makes a way for God's Spirit to dwell within us. That's radical. Acts 17, look at it. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He doesn't. He can't. He doesn't live in temples made by man. He lives in the temple of man that he made with his own hands. 1 Corinthians 6, it says, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They will be people. They will be my people. This is God's desire from the beginning. This is what he created earth for, to be their God so that we could be his people, so that he could dwell with us. This is still what he's doing today, just not in a garden or a temple. He's doing it in his church. This is what we're here for. The church isn't a building. It's a people. 
We are the, the bricks of God's temple that jointly fit together, become the temple of God. Ephesians, the end of Ephesians 1 says that we're the fullness of God here on earth. That's perplexing, but it's through all of us indwelt by the Spirit who are the living stones, who are the temple. We read over something um, I want to draw our attention to, verse 10. I want to show us the purpose that God had for Eden is the same purpose that he has for us today. And, and I want us to look, verse 10 again, it said something. I'll, just, I'll read these four verses Again, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And then it divided and became rivers. And the name of the first is the Pishon, the one that flowed out of the land of Havilah. It watered Havilah. And the gold of the land, yeah, we've read that. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris, flows around Assyria. The name of the fourth is the Euphrates, which fed everywhere Mesopotamia. God desires that what begins in Eden would flow outwards. What begins in his temple would flow outwards. These four rivers watered all of the lands. And now the, the, the purpose still remains, that God's temple today would be a blessing to the whole world. Look at this verse. John 7 points this out. Whoever believes, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What happened in Genesis now happens in us. What happened in Eden now happens in us. The rivers flow out. Why? To be a blessing. To be a blessing. Just as the waters once flowed out of Eden, waters now flow out of us. We are the temple of God on earth, put here to be a blessing to the world around us. We're here to be a blessing to Kelowna. We're here, by God's grace, to be a blessing to this valley. We're here to be a blessing to the whole world. What begins in us is to flow outward. It's not meant to be contained here. The design of Genesis was never to be some closed, walled garden. It was to go out and bless the whole world. And this is where we get this backwards in Christian culture when we try to hold together into our little communes in the woods. We all homeschool our kids and stay away from everyone else. It was never the goal. We're not going garden to garden. We're going garden to city. It's meant to flow outwards. Zechariah, Ezekiel, Joel, they all point to this. The water's meant to flow out and bless the whole earth. And so what we see is when God comes to reinstate this original purpose, it doesn't come back as a garden. It comes back as a city. Take a look at this with me. Revelation 21, the last page. I said this starts at the beginning, goes all the way through. Go to the end, the very last page of your Bible. Unless it's Ben's Bible. Because Ben's got the largest text in his Bible I've ever seen. But where we're going, Revelation 21, a normal Bible, this is the end. It says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And behold, a loud voice from the throne said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and they will be his. God himself will be with them as their God. Genesis 2, reinstated the very end of the Bible. This was the purpose, front to back. This is the book and purpose of the Bible. He would be our God, we would be his people, and he will dwell with us. Look at verse 20. There's so much here. Go read this on your own. Read the entirety of this. It will blow your mind apart, everything going on. I saw no temple in the city, verse 22. I saw no temple. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city had no need of sun or moon or to shine on it. We talked about this last week. The glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, all the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. What begins in the new city is to flow out, to be a blessing to all the nations. Now look, look at the beginning of chapter 22. It says this, Then the angel showed me, this is John talking, the river. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, the Lamb, 
through the middle of the streets of the city and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. I hope this is blowing your mind apart. What we're seeing here is God's intent to dwell with his people and that his people would be a blessing to the whole world. This is what's going to happen when God's new kingdom comes down. It will transform the world for what begins here. Church, this is our mission as well. That Kelowna would be transformed through what's begun here. We're the temple and from us flows living rivers that are meant to transform all the broken, dry places. We are meant to water the whole land. We're put here for Kelowna. We're put here for the whole Okanagan. We're put here for the whole world. What's begun here is meant to flow outward. There's so much more here, but I've got to put a pin in it and we've got to come back and deal with more next week. I want to close us in prayer, and then I want to, I want to lead us into communion, because this is the interesting part, is the Israelites, in order to come into this temple year after year, they would come in and sacrifice to atone for the sin that separated them. You and I have become the temple because of what Jesus did. His body was broken, his blood was shed, he became the Lamb of God, sacrifice, so that you and I can go in and stay in the presence of God. So we're going we're gonna to sing praise to Christ here in a second. I, I want to encourage you, though, is that you have the Spirit of God living in you. And we need to examine ourselves before we come and take this. We're going to have a couple on either side serving it. We've got wine and juice, depending on um, your preference and your convictions on that. But search your heart. Come forward. Take the bread. Dip it in the juice. And just as the bread absorbs the juice, celebrate because Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God reserved for you and I. We have the Spirit of God in us. If you're Christ's, rejoice. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I want to say today's the day you call out to Christ for saving. It's no accident that you're here. Let me close this in prayer. Jesus, I, I thank you. Just the, the clarity that this, this is not some manufactured book. There's no way a story could be this rich and deep. the great transcendent universe and that you're imminent, you're engaged with your creation, and you came down, you tabernacled amongst us in order to reconcile us, to make us your people, take our heart of stone, turn it into a heart of flesh, to make us your people so that you would be our God and we could dwell with you and we praise you because that work is finished in Christ. It's in his great name I pray. Amen.